Well, welcome to our Bible for Life class, Parenting the Early Years. Uh, so excited to be able to continue the study. And I know these are clearly unusual times. So uh, let's begin by praying, and then we'll uh, go ahead and dig into the study. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to continue our study on parenting the early years. We know that parenting is a tremendous privilege, a tremendous gift from you. And we ask that all parents uh, would be strengthened by the Word of God and be able to understand and to focus on what our calling is as parents, to glorify you by being instruments in your hand to bring the children to Christ, to salvation, and then to prepare them for lives of service for your glory. So I pray that in this Bible study today that you would help me and be with each of us as we learn. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning I'm going to talk about uh, Christian parenting and specifically bringing your children to faith in Christ. This is absolutely the top priority for us as Christian parents. Jesus said very memorably in Mark chapter 8, verse 36 and 37, What good would it be for a man if he should gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what could a man give in exchange for his soul? So what that teaching says is that the human soul is worth more than any physical thing in the world. And so for us as parents, we frequently parents say they want to give the world to their kids. And I understand that mentality. You want to give them rich experiences, a good education. You want to enable them to have talents like music or other skills. And that's all reasonable. But what good would it be, in, in light of the question Jesus asked, if your children should gain the whole world and forfeit their souls? Or what would you give in exchange for the souls of your children? How valuable is that? So the top priority that we have is bringing our children to faith in Christ. Now, Charles Spurgeon, a number of years ago, uh, he was a Baptist preacher in the 19th century. And as a Baptist, he believed in believer baptism and did not believe it was right to baptize infants. And so he uh, wrote a sermon and preached a sermon entitled, Children Brought to Christ and Not to the Font. That's the name of the sermon. And frequently in the discussion about child baptism, uh, people that advocate uh, infant baptism or child baptism talk about the passage where the parents bring their children to Christ. And Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for of such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And so Spurgeon said this, he said, some wrongly say, do not teach your children, they will be converted in God's own time, if it be his purpose, and therefore leave them to run wild in the streets. People who say that will, both, uh, will certainly both sin against the child and against the Lord Jesus. We might as well say, if that piece of ground is to grow a harvest, it will do so if it be God's good pleasure. Therefore, leave it and let the weeds spring up and cover it. Do not endeavor for a moment to kill the weeds or to sow the good seed. Why, such reasoning as this would not only be uh, cruel to our children, but grievously displeasing to Christ. Parents, I do hope you are all endeavoring to bring your children to Christ by teaching them the things of God. Let them not be strangers to the plan of salvation. Never let it be said that a child of yours reached years in which his conscience could act and he could judge between good and evil without knowing the doctrine of the atonement, without understanding the great substitutionary work of Christ. Set before your child life and death, hell and heaven, judgment and mercy. Set before your child his own sin and Christ's most precious blood. And as you set these before him, labor with him and persuade him as the apostle did his congregation with tears and weeping to turn unto the Lord and your prayers and your supplication shall be heard so that the Spirit of God shall bring them to Jesus. That's a powerful passage from Charles Spurgeon. And I love the illustration he uses about the farmer saying, look, if God wants there to be a harvest, he can do it. He can plant the seed, he can weed it, he can protect it, he can do the work of a farmer. But it is entrusted to the farmer to do those labors. And so for us, we have to do the labor that's entrusted to us as parents to bring them to Christ. And no, we can't bring them physically to Jesus, but we can bring them to Christ by the ministry of the gospel, the ministry of the word. Now our children... Interestingly enough, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it says are sanctified or set apart as holy unto the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7.14 says, For the unbelieving 
uh, husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, it's a very interesting passage, but what it means is the children of a, even just one Christian parent, but definitely all the more of, of a Christian couple, are set apart unto God in a special way. They have certain, uh, certain influences and certain advantages and privileges, and there are certain responsibilities in relation to the children of believing parents. However, even though they are in some sense set apart unto God, they still must be converted. And in order for them to be converted, they have to be evangelized. And so, no, we cannot bring our children physically to Christ but we can preach the gospel to them and we can live out the gospel in front of them. And both of those things are very important. Think about what the Apostle Paul said concerning the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 3, 6 and 7, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. And so it is with the ministry of the word of God in the lives of our children. We must plant the seed we also have the responsibility in some sense to water the seed. So there are other things we do beyond speaking the word. And I think one of the things that I just mentioned a moment ago is living out a Christian life, living out an example in front of them. But ultimately, only God can save our children. Only God can bring our children to faith in Christ. Uh, there's another parable in Mark chapter 4, 26 through 29. Jesus said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. And as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. That's a powerful image, isn't it, of the growing kingdom of God. Now, that's true of all evangelism, but let's zero in on parenting little ones. What we get out of that is that we are scattering the seed in their hearts. Things happen throughout the seven days of the week, and week after week, month after month, year after year. They grow up so quickly, and we're scattering all those, all those seeds. But the Holy Spirit is working secretly in them, night and day, whether we're awake or asleep. The, the Lord is at work in their little hearts and minds. He's doing things you can't do. And awareness is coming to them and, and conviction is coming to them. And there are certain things that are going on in them secretly and mysteriously and powerfully that are essential to their salvation. And they're happening whether you're there or not. They're happening, honestly, to some degree, whether you pray for those details to happen or not. We're not aware of all the complexities of a, of a human being and his or her little minds and their hearts and their decisions. We're not aware of all that. That's far beyond our pay grade. We can't fully understand all that. But the Holy Spirit completely understands your child, and he is at work spiritually in them. But your job is to scatter the seed, and your job is to water it and to weed the garden, and there's certain things you're called to do. Now, there's a key text, and mentioned it before in this class, but it bears repeating, and that's 2 Timothy 3, verse 15. There it says, how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's a powerful passage. I thought about that when my kids were still in the womb. I remember singing Jesus Loves Me, that's true, but I also remember saying John 3.16 to the little one. We never knew our children's gender before they were born, so we weren't sure if it was a little boy or a little girl. But I would talk to that little one, and I knew they didn't understand the language. I understood that. I knew that there would be a process. But more than anything, I was training myself and preparing myself to just saturate them in the scriptures, which have the power to make them wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. There's a wisdom to the salvation of the soul. Conversely, there's a foolishness to an individual losing his or her soul. But we want our children to be wise. We want them to be wise toward God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We want them to understand wisdom. And the scripture has the power to do all of that work of wisdom in their hearts and bring them to salvation through faith in Christ. But my job is to just supersaturate their lives with the scripture, even from infancy. 
We also know it in Ephesians 6, 4, it says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We're going to talk much more about that verse in the future, God willing. Um, but we want to nurture them in the Lord. We want to uh, admonish them. There's an, an enriching and a training. And there's also an admonishment, a warning having to do with, with sin. And so these are the works that we are given to do. Now, for us, uh, we have to look at our present setting. What is going on in the world of parenting today? How do we understand secular views of parenting? How do we understand things that we see in the world so that we can be warned and not follow that pattern, but go back to the, to the timeless, immovable principles in the Word of God that, that work in every generation? They are timeless. They are uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we should not go after fads or after different approaches to parenting. So what are some of the things that even Christian parents do? One of the things we see, and we have a marvelous youth ministry here at First Baptist Church, and we're grateful for Kevin Schaub and the team that works with him, and how they put all their eggs in the basket of the Word of God. And they trust it. I'm not, not saying they don't have fun and do some things that are great for kids. And they do. But Kevin knows that the Word of God alone can work salvation in the kids, and he's aware that uh, for some of them, they may not yet have come to that point of faith in Christ. The parents, however much they can pray and saturate their kids with the Word of God, might not yet have come to faith in Christ. But across evangelicalism, youth group may be the kind of fallback mode of parents who are negligent at home. They just bring them to church on Sunday, dump them off at the youth group, and expect the youth pastor, a youth minister, to bring them to Christ. Along with that is kind of the shortcut in evangelicalism of getting them to make a decision for Christ. Decisionism, that kind of thing. We see it in worship services where people walk the aisle, pray the prayer, they sign a card, and that's that. We're not looking for a momentary decision uh, on Christ. We want them to have a genuine faith in Christ. And then along with that comes the whole package of early baptism. We see this in a lot of Southern Baptist churches where you get them to walk the aisle on a Sunday morning or during uh, VBS or during, during youth group, and then they um, pray a prayer, and then you just get them quickly to water baptism. And then at that point, you feel like your job is done as a Christian mom or dad. And I think that's just a faulty model. Now, I have a lot to say about child baptism, and that would be a good whole other topic for another day. But we uh, at this church, at First Baptist Durham, we don't advocate child baptism. We don't look for child baptism. We love having conversations with children who the Holy Spirit's working on them. And we do believe, and you have to hear me on this, we believe with all of our hearts that children can come to faith in Christ at a very early age. However, it's very difficult to tell whether it's truly happened from the outside looking in. And so that's why we think it's best to wait for youth baptism and then certainly adult baptism. Uh, because children growing up in a Christian home really can't count the cost. They can't know what it's going to be to be a disciple. They're growing up with a mom and dad who really want them to be Christians and they aim to please and they're good at parroting phrases they don't fully understand. Uh, and conversely, I think they can genuinely come to faith in Christ and they use those exact same phrases. So we don't really know for sure what's going on. So my feeling is fundamentally we want to be patient on water baptism. We want to wait until they're older. We want to be able to, uh, to be certain that they have been tested and that their faith in Christ is genuine. So there's so many more things we could say about early uh, or child baptism versus youth baptism. I think we also have to advocate just charity in, in all of this. So let's zero in now on parental responsibilities. Let's try to understand what our job description is spiritually when it comes to the gospel and bringing our children to an early faith in Christ. Richard Baxter said this, I do verily believe that if parents did their duty as they ought, the word publicly preached would not be the ordinary means of regeneration in the church, but only outside of the church among practical heathens and infidels. End quote. In other words, people who don't have a church background, we would be out and evangelizing them, and they would come to faith or they would come to the service and hear the Word of God preached. But for those growing up in Christian homes, if the parents did their task as they should, they would have been brought to faith in Christ with mom and dad a long time before that. 
So what are our responsibilities? Well, let's begin with prayer. This is something that you can do even as you're waiting for the child to make his or her grand appearance on their birthday. Um, we should be praying, and we can pray even before the children are conceived. We can be praying and getting our hearts ready, but prayer is a vital role for a Christian father or a Christian mother. And we have a great role model for this in the Bible with Job. Job was one of the godliest men in the Bible, and he was a godly father. And he had children that he prayed for, and they were grown children. So his responsibility to pray for their spiritual welfare went way beyond uh, when they were... Uh, toddlers or infants, um, but went into their adult years. But this is what it says, Job 1.5. He said, when a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. And so we see Job concerned about the spiritual welfare of his children, and offering up sacrifices for them. Now that we're in the New Covenant era now, we don't do animal sacrifices anymore, but we go to the Lord in prayer. Let's go back to Spurgeon's uh, sermon, uh, children brought to Christ and not to the font, to baptism. Spurgeon said this, How can we bring children to Jesus Christ to be blessed? We cannot do it in a physical sense, for Jesus is not here. He is risen. But we can bring our children in a true, real, and spiritual sense. We can take them up in the arms of our prayers. I hope many of us, so soon as our children saw the light, if not before, presented them to God with this anxious prayer that they might sooner die than to live to disgrace their father's God. We only desired children that we might in them live over again another life of service to God. And when we looked into their young faces, we never asked wealth for them, nor fame, nor anything else, but that they might be dear unto God, and that their names might be written in the Lamb's book of life. We did then, we did then bring our children to Christ as far as we could do it by presenting them before God, by earnest prayer on their behalf. And have we ceased to bring them to Christ? Nay, I hope we seldom bow the knee without praying for our children. Our daily cry is, oh, that they might live before thee. God knows that nothing would give us more joy than to see evidence of their conversion. Our souls would almost leap out of our bodies with joy if we should but know that they were the children of the living God. Nor has this privilege been denied to us, for there are some here who can rejoice in a converted household. Truly, we can say with the Apostle John, I have no greater joy than this, that my children walk in the truth. We continue, therefore, to bring them to Christ by daily, constant, earnest prayer on their behalf. Now, it's interesting. Spurgeon says all that about how fervent we should be in praying for our children, knowing the, the statement, I planted the seed, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And so some of the watering we do is with our intercessions and sometimes with our tears. As our children get older, they're going to sometimes even, it seems, break our hearts and we're going to weep and pray for them. But it's interesting, Charles Spurgeon spoke of his own mother's prayer for him. Then came a mother's prayer, he said, and some of the words of a mother's prayer we shall never forget even when our hair is gray. I remember on one occasion her praying for me in this way. Now, Lord... If my children go on in their sins, it will not be from ignorance that they perish, and my soul must bear a swift witness against them at the day of judgment if they lay not hold of Christ. Well, that thought of my mother's bearing swift witness against me pierced my conscience and stirred my heart. This pleading for them, pleading with them for God and, and with God for them is the true way of bringing children to Christ. Can you imagine that, what, it, what that was like for a young boy, Spurgeon, to hear his mother praying with tears coming down her face? Lord, please save little Charles. Bring Charles to faith in Christ. But if he is not converted, I will stand up and testify against him on Judgment Day that he did hear the gospel from me and chose not to believe. Well, that broke his heart and it was instrumental ultimately in saving him. So what should we pray for? We should pray daily for our children's conversion, of course, if they have not yet clearly trusted in Christ. 
We should pray, if they have, for our children's growth as disciples in Christ, development in, in their faith in Christ. We should take a list of marks of regeneration, which we can talk about uh, later on, of ways that we can see that God is at work in their hearts, the heart dispositions, uh, behaviors, some things we should be looking for, and pray for them. And pray, I pray, Lord, that I would come in on my, my little one after they learn to read and find them reading their Bibles or find them praying. That I see their hearts being convicted of sin when I discipline them. That they have a Godward focus concerning their sin. Various things like that. So we're praying for marks of conversion, marks of regeneration. That they would hunger and thirst for righteousness. Things like that. That they would have a genuine love for God and love for others. That they would yearn to go to church. That they'd be excited to study the Bible and to pray. These things we want to see. And we'll talk more about those. But pray for them. Pray for the fruit of the Spirit. Go through the list of the fruit of the Spirit. Say, Lord, I pray that you would develop a heart of love in my child. A heart of joy or peace, patience. Each of the fruit of the Spirit. Pray conversely against the acts of the flesh that are listed just before that. Pray about each one. There are numerous sin lists in the Bible. Galatians 5 has a sin list. But so also at the end of Romans chapter 1, there's a list of 31 sins. Just go through it and pray that your children would not develop sin habits in these areas. Pray for spiritual protection from the evil one. Uh, Satan is at war against the souls of your children. And so pray for spiritual protection. Put a wall, a hedge of protection around them spiritually. Uh, pray for the development of godly habits that they would regularly read the Bible, regularly pray, that they would regularly go to church so that when they are on their own as adults, they would continue in those habits. Pray for them to be warriors against their own sin habits, that they would learn to put sin to death by the Spirit, that they would see the spiritual aspects of sin, and that they would learn that from the ministry of the Word. Pray for their future lives. Uh, pray for their education. Pray for their continued development. I love what it says about Jesus, that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So it talks about physical development, mental or intellectual development, social development, spiritual development. So that's Luke 2.52. You just take that and pray for each of those four things and pray that they would make some mile markers. You can set goals and say, this upcoming year, I'd love to see you growing in this area, uh, etc. And just pray for the details. Above all, pray that they would love God, the Lord their God, with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And secondly, that they would love their neighbors as themselves. The two great commandments. Pray for these and many other. Anything you find in Scripture that you would like to see developing in your kids, pray for them. Now, along with prayer, another responsibility we have as Christian parents is comprehensive Bible teaching. Our task, and I already used this word once, but our task is to saturate them in the Word of God. We are to absolutely immerse them, marinate them in the Word of God. So there's different patterns for this, and we're going to talk about that, but you're going to have your family devotions. Uh, you're going to have um, dinnertime discussions. You're going to have personal, as they get older, one-on-one -on -one discipleship times with them. Uh, and you're going to have just as-you-go type of times. Th those are the occasions. Uh, but then what are you going to teach? Well, I like this. Um, Acts 20, Paul says, I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. So start with the gospel. You're going to just saturate them in the gospel. God, man, Christ, response. Those four things. They're going to just know that God made them. God made all things. And because God made them in all things, God is a king and a ruler and a lawgiver, and they're going to know the Ten Commandments, and you're going to go through the commandments of Scripture, and they're going to understand themselves as special creations of God, created in the image of God, but also as sinners. They're going to understand the fall in Adam and that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And they're going to understand who Jesus is, the God-man, fully man, fully God, born of the Virgin Mary, that he lived a sinless life, he did all these miracles, but especially he died in our place on the cross. And God raised him from the dead on the third day. And right now he even sits at the right hand of Almighty God. And someday he's going to come from that place to judge the living and the dead. And so we want to tell them that all they need to do for the forgiveness of sins is not works, it's not by works, but by simple repentance and faith in, in Christ, they are going to have their sins forgiven. That's the gospel. God, man, Christ response. Saturate them in it. You'll have lots of opportunities to talk about sin, believe me. And so every time that they sin and you're disciplining them, they're going to hear the gospel. So going back to Acts 20, 
24 through 27. He says, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. And then he says, now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, listen to this, I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated or shrunk back from proclaiming to you the whole will of God. So that's what you get to teach them, the whole will of God. So what is that? That's everything. That's 66 books of the Bible. That's systematic theology. That's all of it. And let me tell you something. The, the days go by, the years go by like the wind. And it's amazing how fast it goes. So first and foremost, the milk, the milk of the gospel. The gospel is milk. So simple a child can understand it. But then there's the meat of the whole counsel of the Word of God. You want to teach them all of these things. You want to saturate their minds in the Old Testament, specifically as it is the law of God. Let them understand God's standards. Let them understand the law. Now, Christian parenting is a mysterious mixture of Old Covenant and New Covenant. You have to do both. You have to put them under the law. There are just rules in your home. There are laws that they have to follow, and there are going to be consequences if they break them. And they need to see the scriptural root in those. There's probably no single verse my, uh, my children have heard more frequently than, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. They could say it frontwards and backwards, they've heard it, but what they understand is, we didn't make it up. Their mom and dad didn't write it. It was there centuries before we were born, and God's going to hold us accountable. We don't have the freedom to remove that off the page. And so they're going to see the Old Testament laws, and they're going to be broken by them. They're going to see that they do not keep them, and they're going to see that law work done in their souls, bringing them to faith in Christ. But then beyond that, they're going to see the Gospels. They're going to see the teaching of Christ, the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all of the epistles which unfold the doctrine of the New Covenant and how we are to live as Christians. Beyond that is all the other genres of Scripture, the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, the book of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Psalms, how to pray, how to worship, book of Proverbs, day-to-day -day wisdom, you know, what to do with their mouth, what to do with their money, how to not fall in with the wrong gang. It seems like the book of Proverbs is written more for later parenting, for parenting a, a, a young man, a teenager, a father giving a young man wisdom. It's written in a masculine point of view, but young ladies can get wisdom from it too. But there's that, that whole book of wisdom that comes in the book of Proverbs. And then all the way through, even to the book of Revelation, which talks about where we're all heading, the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. Teach them the whole counsel of the Word of God. And be God-centered in your teaching. In every text, you're going to ask the two questions that John Calvin says when he, at the beginning of the Institutes of the Christian Religion. He said, nearly all the wisdom that we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists in two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. So that's a great, great place. Every text you read, say two questions. What do we learn about God here? And what do we learn about ourselves? And it's going to be different in every text. We're going to learn some things about God. Be very God-centered in our teaching, but also teach them who they are. And again, preach the gospel of Christ constantly. So as you read a text, you can say, yes, sweetheart, people in this story did a very bad thing. We all have sins in our lives, don't we? We all do things, bad things, that we, that we regret. And if it weren't for Jesus, we would all deserve to go to hell. But God sent his son to die in our place. And so the things we're reading in this story that are so bad in the Bible, we know that that badness is in our hearts too. And isn't it wonderful that God sent his son that we might have forgiveness of sins? You can do that again and again and should do it. So day after day, week after week, let the river of scripture flow over them. Let them be washed and smoothed out and polished by a constant river of the Word of God. And let it be said as they get to be adult age and, and they're asked, when did you come to Christ? It would not be surprising that they cannot point to a specific time. They just know that they are Christians because there was never a time that their mom and dad didn't speak the gospel to them. Now, people have different experiences. There, there may be a decisive moment in an eight-year-old's life or five-year-old's life or 17-year-old's. We understand that. God does different things in different people's lives. But it's also very common for some kids to say, you know, there's never a time I didn't know the gospel. My parents just poured it into me, and at an early age I came to faith. So as you go through each passage, just make it clear and teach them the Word of God. Some people, and I, I commend this, use catechisms 
uh, which are memorized questions and answers to organize basic Christian doctrines. We did this uh, with our kids, you know, who made you? God. What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. How can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. What are the commandments of God, etc.? It just brings you through, and that's a way of organizing Christian doctrine. And so, as you're parenting, you're, thirdly, you're going to pray for them, you're going to saturate them in the Word of God, and you're going to evangelize them situationally. You're going to see them in specific situations in which they are behaving a certain way, and you're going to bring them back to the cross. You're going to bring them to the law and to the gospel, and they're going to see that behavior, that selfishness, that moment of defiance, uh, that moment of disobedience in light of the law and the gospel. So that's a responsibility you have as a Christian parent. Fourthly, you're going to role model. You're going to role model. You've got to live it out in front of them. Children are very, very aware, and more and more as they get older, of hypocrisy, of espousing a standard that you don't actually live. And so you need to role model. Let's go back to 2 Timothy 3. Verse 15 we've looked at. Let's look at 14 and 15 together. Verse 14, 2 Timothy 3, 14 says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. Ah, that's interesting. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation. So he's talking about his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice, two godly women. His father was of no account spiritually. We don't know anything about him. He's not a believer. But he had a godly mother and a godly grandmother, and they poured the Word of God into him at an early age. And so that shows the importance of role modeling, of living out. Continue, Timothy, in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. And then Paul himself became a kind of a surrogate spiritual father to him, and he lived out as a role model the Word of God. And so role modeling. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So let them see your love for Christ. Let them see your private prayer life. Let them come into the room in the morning and see you kneeling and praying. Let that be a regular uh, scene. Even now, uh, Daphne will come in. She's 14, and I'm finishing my prayer time, and she'll kneel down at the couch next to me. Happens a lot. I'll put my arm around her, and I'll change my prayer a little now that she's there, and I'll include her in the prayer, and she'll pray too. And just sweet. It's been going on for years. And so just let them see, let them catch you praying. Um, let them see your love for the Word of God. They just, they, they see how you can't get enough of hearing good preaching or reading good Christian books saturated in Scripture, memorizing Scripture. Just let your heart for the Lord and for His work and His people shine. And if you're convicted that it's not a good role modeling that you're displaying, then repent. For your children's sake, change. If you want to see certain patterns develop in your family, then do them, especially you Christian fathers. Lead out. You want to say, I want a, a ministry to the, to the poor and needy, then lead out. Say, family, we're going to do a ministry project. We're going to go out on Tuesday nights and do this or that. Just different projects. Let them see your love for worship in your attitude um, of, of singing hymns and, and going to public worship, just at private, at home, uh, just the way that you love to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And confess sin to them when needed. This is very impactful. When you've done wrong, tell them. Don't be so proud you can't tell your children, you know, I was sinfully angry at you when you did that. I did not discipline you the way I wanted to. I, I lost my temper, and I'm sorry, and I'm a sinner. Would you please forgive me? And that, that they see that you also are humble enough to admit your sins. So parents, if your children do not see your joyful obedience in Christ on a daily basis, as a matter of your way of life, you will actually be greatly hindering them from coming to faith in Christ. Part of it is just show them delight. You know, people talk about, you know, my parents force religion down my throat. Well, I don't think you have to force ice cream down any child's throat. The question is, do you see Christ and following him as delightful or not? And if you don't, they're going to pick up on that. Uh, along with that, fifthly, is family worship. Family worship. Uh, so we need to have regular patterns of fam the family altar, sometimes it's called family worship. Again, you fathers need to lead out on this, but there's going to be some times in which uh, dads are away on, on business or something, and moms can do it. 
we have the family altar regularly spoken of in the um, Old Testament. Noah, after the flood, built an ar- altar. Uh, and he got off the ark and took some of the clean animals and, and the Lord smelled that, that fragrant aroma and he, and he blessed Noah and his family. Uh, Abraham set up a family altar and they worship. Uh, so much so that Isaac, little boy Isaac, knew. He said, here's, here's the wood and the fire, but where's the sacrifice? And so he, this is a regular pattern. So the family altar. So what we mean by that is you gather the family at set times, maybe twice a day, once a day, but try to make it every day. And there's a regular rhythm to it. You don't make them too short or too long. Um, if you have stair-step kids, this is a challenge where you have nine-year-old down to an 18-month-old. But it's okay. Don't worry about the 18-month-old. He or she can just be there. And they uh, you know, kind of tailor it to right in the middle where you're, you're five-year-old, four-year-old, something like that. But stretch them and challenge them. And as they hear the Word of God, so it's just simple. Read the Bible, discuss it, and pray together. Maybe you want to add also some family singing. So do the family worship. And also, sixthly, uh, active church life. Active church life. So you can pray for them. Let me see if I can remember. I can't do it from memory, but I'll go ahead and pray for them. Number one. Number two, comprehensive Bible teaching, all of the scriptures, uh, zeroing in on evangelism, sensing the moment, what God's doing in their hearts, role modeling, living it out in front of them, family altar, the family worship, and then sixthly, active church life. Bring them to church. John Piper said, worship is the most valuable thing a human being can do. Listen to this. The cumulative effect of 650 worship services spent with mom and dad between the ages of 4 and 17 is incalculable. Now, for me as a preacher, I hear all the time, I can never remember anything any preacher said in a sermon, but I always remember the lyrics to a song. I've heard that so many times. But here's the thing. I don't expect people to remember every phrase that I've given, just any more than my wife expects me to remember all the vegetables that she's cooked or the, or the protein that she's cooked that I've chewed and swallowed. But she has fed me well for the many years that we've been married. And so I, as a pastor, I, I just feel what Jesus says is feed my flock, feed my sheep. So they sit and listen. And as the word of God is rightly divided and unfolded and preached with passion and with, with love, the people are being fed they're being strengthened, and, and they don't even know how. Just like Mark 4 said, night or day, whether he's awake or asleep, the seed grows, though he knows not how. So what I'm saying is, if, if I am clearly explaining text after text of Scripture, and people are genuine believers, they love God's Word, and they listen to a decade of that kind of preaching, guess what? They're going to be more conformed to Christ 10 years later than they were at the beginning. It's just going to happen. And so it is with, the, with kids coming to church. Bring them to church. Now, your job, if you're a Christian mom or dad, especially you fathers, is to find a good church. Make certain that the pulpit ministry is a faithful, expository ministry of the Word of God. Bring them. And so see how you involve yourself in church. Be certain that you don't criticize. They, they hear you talking about church. Don't do that in front of them being negative. Just give them a sense of how much you delight to be a member of that local church. Um, children should be included as much as possible in church activities. And church should not be structured in a way that divides families or pulls them away from their, uh, their regular patterns. So that's something that we pastors have to be careful. And then finally, discipline your children. Discipline them as a means to repentance. So these are your parental responsibilities. Discipline is the last one I want to talk to you about. All of a child's sin should be disciplined with the goal of bringing the child to repentance and faith in Christ. So thus, all sin should be seen vertically toward God, like Psalm 51, against you and you only have I done what is evil. So we want to first and foremost bring them to a sense of God in all this. So let's say there's two brothers separated by two years and they're fighting over a toy and it happens again and again. You want both of them to understand that God is in the center of all that that God wants them to love each other, that God wants them to, to deny themselves and to be generous and not look to their own interests, but to look to the interests of others, that God is behind all of these things. Especially God doesn't want them to fight. He doesn't want them to be angry at each other. So God is in the middle of all of that, that they see that. There should be a cumulative sense of guilt over the years, in a healthy way, by that I mean, where they start to realize, you know, this... My sin nature is a big problem in my life. 
This keeps happening again and again. And you can be there as a parent to say, look, God's word doesn't change. Every time you do it, you need to confess it to God. And after a while, doesn't it get old? Don't you hate it? And then show them Romans 7. Paul was like, the very thing I hate, I do. The thing that I want to do, I don't do. And I know that it's sin living in me. And what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. You want them to have a sense of the depth of sin and, and that sin makes them guilty. Apart from Christ, we would all be condemned. And give them a sense of the grace and mercy where sin abounds Grace abounds all the more. It's an ocean of grace that we're swimming in if we're Christians, that all of our sins are completely covered, grace greater than all of our sins. So those are our responsibilities as Christian parents. All right, now I want to turn to some aspects of leading children to Christ. I want to talk about detail. I've given you the general parental responsibilities centered around the spiritual work that God is doing in your children. But let's, uh, let's talk about them deeper and a little more fully and more biblically. First of all, as we're thinking about leading our children to Christ, let's understand them biblically. Let's understand them. First of all, don't underestimate them. Don't underestimate them. Remember the disciples, when parents brought the children to Jesus to have him pray for them and bless them? They stopped them. They stopped the parents. And they, they prevented them from coming. Uh, the implication is, don't you know who our boss is? He's an important man, and he doesn't have time for kids. So you could see that kind of attitude. And Jesus was actually quite put out with them. He, he wasn't mild at that point. He was, he was righteously indignant with the apostles. This is what it says, Mark 10, 13 through 16. People were bringing little chi- children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. It's a mild statement. He was angry at them. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and he put his hands on them and blessed them. So don't underestimate them. Jesus wants them to come to him even at a very early age. So Let's not underestimate them. Let's realize they are human beings created in the image of God. They have the same worth and value as you do. Children are inheritance from the Lord. Psalm 127, verse 3. They're created in the image of God. By the way, this is a very good check and stop to you as, a, as a, an angry parent. A sinfully angry parent. You get angry at your kids and you tend to discipline them too sharply and harshly and you lord it over them and domineer them, you're forgetting some very important things. First of all, they are also in the image of God. And secondly, they aren't ultimately yours. They're ultimately God's. They are a stewardship. And you have a responsibility to deliver them effectively back to him, unscathed and trained and evangelized. They have been entrusted to you for your care. And so you do not have the right to abuse them. You don't have the right to be harsh with them, um, but instead to cherish them as images of God, that they are going to be equally standing next to you, hopefully in heaven, side by side with you. Every bit is glorious. Every bit is redeemed on equal footing with you. So this parent-child relationship is a temporary relationship, especially when it comes to authority and the right to commands. Temporary. So Jesus was indignant with the disciples when they refused to allow the parents to come because they are precious. Children are precious. In Luke 12, 6 and 7, it says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. So don't underestimate them. Realize they are in the image of God. They're incredibly valuable. Also, children have a remarkable capacity for learning. Their learning curve is staggering over the first five years. It's staggering. I remember when we were missionaries in Japan and my wife and I were, were getting tutored three times a week. We were memorizing vocabulary cards and we were listening to what we had back then, cassette tapes with Japanese conversation. All this was going on as we're trying to acquire a new language. Along with that came my little daughter, Jenny, who turned one about a week after we got to Japan. We were there for two years. For two years, she just kind of toddled around our house, didn't look at any flashcards, listened to no cassette tapes, and was fluent in English at the end of the two years. Just fluent. 
I mean, now she had a lot of vocabulary to learn and all that, but she was conversational. And that happened without any kind of intentionality on her part. Well, the same thing can happen theologically. They can, they can just soak in and drink in truths. And so we want to take advantage of that. Also, there's a tremendous advantage that children have over adults in that they don't have a long history of sin. Their hearts are soft. Their hearts are tender. They're not bitter or proud. Um, children are, are, have a, a submissiveness and a willingness to believe things, invisible things. They're ready to believe. They're ready to obey. That's, children are kind of wired that way. The kingdom of, of heaven belongs to such as these. So adults, effectively, to be converted, have to become like little children. They have to be teachable, humble, and believe invisible things. Um, children are ready to do that, so they have an advantage. With the adult, you have to make them become little children. They have to make themselves become The children are already there. So I remember the Child Evangelism Fellowship president, I heard him speak, uh, he was talking about that. We spend so much effort in evangelizing, getting an adult to be humble, submissive, and teachable like a little child. The little child's already there. So you've got a ready-made um, disciple there in your, in your home, ready to listen, ready to believe. So don't, don't underestimate them. You know, it says in Matthew 11, 25 and 26, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the little children, or wise and learned, and revealed them to little children. God reveals deep things to little children. Yes, Father, this was your good pleasure. So bring them to Jesus. Welcome them. Do not hinder them. Jesus welcomed them and took them in his arms and prayed for them. Okay, so don't underestimate them, but don't overestimate them either. They are sinners. They're not little angels. They're not. First of all, angels and humans are different orders of being. So let's just be clear about that. We will not become angels. We don't get wings like in uh, It's a Wonderful Life, you know, whenever the bell, bell rings and all that. Um, but they don't come in as little angels. They come in as little descendants of Adam. And so, therefore, they are fanatically committed to themselves. They're fanatically committed to self. And you know exactly what I mean when they demand, absolutely demand their way from an early age. Psalm 51, verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Just as human, we are sinful. We come into the world sinful. Romans 5, 19, this is the doctrine of original sin. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many are made righteous. And also, Proverbs twenty-two fifteen: Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. So this is, this is the, the, uh, the way that children come into the world. So I read this um, police study in San Francisco on juvenile delinquencies cited by Jim Eliff. Listen to this. Every baby starts life as a little savage. He is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants, his bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toys, his uncle's watch, whatever. Deny him these, and he seethes with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. He is dirty, he has no morals, no knowledge, and no developed skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, but all children, are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in their self-centered world of infancy, given free reign to their impulsive actions to satisfy every want, then every child would grow up a criminal, a killer, a thief, and a rapist. Well, that's, that may seem overly gloomy. You read the Bible, you realize it's just it's true. The, the, the sin nature is devastating. It's destructive. And some of what God has put in place to restrain that is good parenting. Even by non-Christians, just learning manners and obedience and submission to authority, just regular parenting will do that. But how much more Christian parenting? Beyond that, not just are they sinners, they are immature. When I was a child, Paul said, I thought like a child, talked like a child, reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Also, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 20, Brothers, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. So there's a, a, a thinking like a child. All right. So there is this maturity that has to come uh, along the way. There's a, a pattern of development, and we want to see that. You know, I, I, my little granddaughter, Sola, was born uh, just two weeks ago, and we were looking down, and we were just wondering what thoughts were going through her mind. And I'm thinking, well, if they're anything like the thoughts of a 
two-year-old, a three-year-old, it's like not much. There's not a lot of, of developed, deep, logical thinking. Um, and so they're, they're immature. And because they're immature, they need to begin with milk and then advance more and more to harder and harder things. Um, because children are immature, they also need to be trained gradually and patiently and gently and constantly urged to make progress spiritually. Thirdly, they need to be converted. However sweet they are, they must be converted or they will be condemned. Now, I believe, and there's a lot of different, different, uh, disagreements about this, but I think that there's no evidence of, of infant damnation. I think that people who are damned in the scriptures are always damned because of what they have done, because of their actions. The court is seated, the books are opened, and people are condemned by what is recorded in the books. Infants who die in infancy or in the womb, uh, they have nothing recorded in the book. So I think just as the sin of Adam is ascribed to them apart from their will, so also the blessings of Christ and salvation apply to them. But what I would say is for all of that, as they get older and older in their thinking, somewhere in there, they understand that there's a creator who made them and that they owe him allegiance and they don't do it. So Paul says, once I was alive um, before the law came, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. So I think that's a spiritual death that comes from violating God's law, knowing God wants you to do this. He wants you to not covet, and you covet anyway. So you're a sinner. So somewhere in there, they um, come under the death, uh, spiritual death of the law, and they need to be converted. They must repent, and they must believe. They must be born again. You don't know when that is. That's why I'm saying you have to saturate their little minds and hearts with the gospel. Now, they have to understand the gospel, and so do you. So I gave it to you earlier, God, man, Christ response. If you don't know the gospel clearly or to articulate it, it's a good chance to learn. So, you know, we can teach you. Uh, there's a lot of different places you can go to learn God, man, Christ response. But just learn it and learn how to articulate it at an age-appropriate level. And understand conversion. What is happening at conversion? It's a miracle. It's a miracle of grace. The heart of stone is removed, the heart of flesh put in. They are born again. One moment they were dead in their transgressions and sins. The next moment they're alive. And so understand conversion. Understand repent, what repentance is. Turning away from sin. Turning away from self. Turning away from that particular pattern of sin. And hating it in your mind and in your heart. And then turning to God. Turning toward Him. Away from sin toward God. And faith in Christ is, I think, a spiritual vision. Uh, seeing the beauty of Jesus Christ. Him crucified. Him resurrected. Understanding He died in your place, for your sin. That's what repentance and faith is. Just understand what these things um, are. The, the sinner's prayer is not essential. Calling on the name of the Lord is, so that they would, in their own childish sort of way, call on Jesus to save them from their, or for their sins. Um, it's no great accomplishment to get a child to, uh, to mimic a prayer. I remember um, my kids are in a very extended stair step. Our oldest, uh, Nathaniel, is 29. Daphne is 14. So it's a 15-year spread. And I remember it might have been Nathaniel was very concerned about Carolyn when she was quite little, and he, was, he really wanted to be certain that she was saved. I said, well, we, what do you want us to do? <laughs> and he wanted us to go. She had just been in bed a short time to wake her up and lead her in the sinner's prayer. I said, no problem. Let's go do that. So we went in there and woke, you know, she wasn't even asleep. And, and so Nathaniel was there and I said, Carolyn, I would like you to pray a prayer with me. Okay, daddy, you know, and she just absolutely parroted everything I said. And I think I was like two thirds of the way through it. And I think Nathaniel stopped. He said, dad, don't just stop. You don't need to. Because he knew she would just parrot everything I was saying. So getting them to parrot a prayer will not save their souls. It's a genuine uh, supernatural work of sovereign grace done only by Almighty God through the person of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit alone can convert your children, and that's what it means to be born by the Spirit. So we desire uh, for them to be converted. They can be converted at an early age, um, and we yearn for that. We pray for that. We want them to know it. And then along the way, just let them know, and don't be afraid to talk to them about hell. Jesus talked to them about hell. And so, at, again, at age-appropriate levels, just talk about hell, just a thing, hell, and at some point, they're going to want to know more and more about what it is, eternal conscious torment. Enter through the narrow gate, 
For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to life and or that leads to death and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Let them know that there are two different ways to live. There are two different destinations. And let them more and more understand what hell is and fear it. All right, as, as we finish up, we only have a couple more minutes. I want to talk about marks of regeneration. I mentioned them earlier. Let's, let me give you a good list. And uh, some of you may want these, and if so, just email us, and we can send you the list. And usually you would have a handout. But let me just go ahead and walk through. What do I mean by marks of regeneration? What are indicators that we see in their lives that show us that they have been born again? Uh, born again means instantaneously transformed by the Spirit. They were dead in their transgressions and sins, and now they are alive. And once that happens, a life with Christ follows. All right. So first and foremost, they should display love for God and love for others, the two great commandments. Out of the fullness of the heart, their mouth will speak their love for God. They will talk about love for God. They will often express love for God. They will talk with, with emotion about the way he loves us. They will talk especially that way about Christ. They will love to talk about Jesus and say his name. They often express affection for Christ, and they want to be with him, and they want to sit with him. And they will say, they don't even know they're quoting scripture, where Jesus said, Father, I want those whom you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. They'll say the same thing on their own. I just want to be with Jesus. I want to, want to sit on his lap, or I want to sit next to him, or, or walk with him. And, and, and wouldn't it be wonderful if Jesus were here? That, that's just love for God and love for, love for others. Love for Christian brothers and sisters. They love other Christians. They love to be around Christians. As they get older, they start to see the, most of the world is not Christian. They'll see non-Christians and how they act. We can talk about that. Well, that person's probably not a believer, and we need to pray for them to come to faith in Christ. But then when they come to church or to home fellowship, they see other Christians. They behave differently, and they love that. They love to be with the Christian brothers and sisters. They delight in Christian fellowship. Thirdly, they grow in obedience to God's commands as such. They want to obey because God is the one who has told them to do it. They have a Godward focus of obedience in their lives. They love to do God's word because they're pleased with it. They want to obey his commands. So consistent. They're never going to be perfectly obedient, but you're going to see patterns of obedience. Fourthly, they, they grow in love for God's word. They love to read the Bible. They love to open it up. Now, it's going to be age appropriate. Early, early on, pictures. Almost all pictures, no words. But little by little by little, as they learn to read, um, and as they, they get older and they get uh, more prepared, um, they're going to read the Bible. By the way, for, for those of you that are moms, maybe some of you are homeschooling, even if you're not, a lot of times it's moms that teach the little kids how to read. And do you realize what an incredibly, eternally consequential ministry you have because you're giving them, ultimately, the 66 books of the Bible. You're giving them the Scripture. What an incredible ministry you're having to them. But love for God's word. Growth in hatred of evil and sin. They hate it. They don't want to do it. It's the thing that grieves them the most, these habits and patterns. They specifically hate sin because God hates it. They display a vertical dimension of sorrow for sin and for evil. They're not just concerned with getting caught. They're not upset about getting disciplined. They don't like that. Nobody does. No discipline is pleasant, but painful. Hebrew says that. But they also hate that they disappointed Jesus. And there's a Godward sense of, of hatred for sin and evil. Sixthly, they, they actually resist certain temptations that they used to fall into. You can see them saying no to themselves. They're denying themselves. They, there's actual victories over sin. They start putting their toys away at the end when they used to be very messy. They start to offer and to share with their brother or their sister or their friend and not be selfish. Seventh, they grow in good deeds done to, uh, for others. They find ways to serve others. You know, mommy, can I help you with that? Could I clean something for you? That kind of thing. Is there something we could do for the neighbor? I heard that Mrs. So-and-so is sick. Maybe we could bring them a meal, something like that. Number eight, they're able to explain the gospel. In their own way, they more and more can explain God, man, Christ's response. They're able to explain what each of those things are. Ninthly, they have some sense of counting the cost. They realize they're in a non-Christian world, and most of the world hates, hates Christians. And it's going to be hard to be a Christian. And this is going to be more and more. This is when they're starting to get ready to be baptized. They understand the world hates Christians, and they're willing to be a Christian anyway. And tenth, they have the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit that they are children of God. They're hearing him say, God, God loves you. You are a child of God. And they can feel that, and they can put that into words. Those are 10 marks of regeneration that I think you should pray toward and look for.
All right, why don't we close in prayer? We'll be done with this BFL class. Lord, thank you for this time we've had to study and to learn and to grow. And I pray that you would take this uh, parenting early years BFL and make it useful to the parents in our church and even to those that might find this on the website and learn from it. We thank you for the privilege of being Christian parents. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.